0: The scripture reading today is from 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Hi again, everyone. Great to see you all. If I didn't get to greet you earlier, it really is wonderful to, to see all your faces and, and to be together in this place to worship God. Thank you to our worship team for leading us through that time of of praise to our holy, thrice-holy God. And um, and thank you, uh, Andrew, for reading God's Word to us, and Robert for, for praying. Um, I know they're not here to hear it, but um, I think we want to be in constant expressing constant gratitude to all of our um, children's ministry volunteers and, and children's ministry leaders who are many of, of whom, well, some of you volunteer on, on a regular basis to, to teach our, our kids in, in their classes. Thank you so much for the sacrifices that you all make to do that. Um, we trust with you that God is going to bring and is already bringing forth fruit from all of that. Well, New Hope, last week... We talked about identity, and what we saw is that the scriptures tell us that that God sees and he knows and he cares for each of us as individuals. He knows us each specifically. In fact, if you are in Christ, we saw this last week, you are a saint, a holy one, set apart for God, and you're also God's child, individually individually. Specifically adopted into his family and beloved in Christ. This week we're going to think about identity again, but we're going to think about it from a different angle. The, the passage that Andrew just read to us speaks to the collective identity of God's people. Right? Again, our Creator knows us each individually, He sees us that way, but He also, He views and He interacts with us collectively collectively as a people a single people a vast community in christ called the church the church with a capital c that's our focus today and over the next two weeks that's what we're going to focus on what is or who is the church and i'm calling this this very brief mini-series this is us This is us. Now, I've actually never watched a single episode of the show that's called This is Us. I don't know if you guys are fans. I've never watched it, but one of my favorite preachers in the world, uh, Pastor Charlie Dates, he used this phrase recently when, when he was describing the church, as he was expounding Hebrews chapter 10, this is us. And it really stuck with me. I kept thinking about it as I was reading 1 Peter 2. 9 and 10, our passage for today. So, as we read scriptures like these, like 1 Peter 2, that that describe the church of God, I want us to be aware of and declare together, this is us. Yes, it describes New Hope Fellowship specifically, but not only New Hope Fellowship. It describes every local community of believers in Jesus worldwide. Worldwide worshiping in every language on the planet. This is us. And, and, and with this identity that we're going to look at today, God gives us a calling, a calling to live together as his people, as his collective representative on earth. Think about that. We're not just representatives of God individually on earth, but as a global church, we are a single representative of God on this planet. Baby boomers. You know baby boomers. Some of you are baby boomers. They are Americans who were born between 1946 and 1964. I want to show you. Can we show the, the, the... There's an image up here that kind of helps us understand. I'm confused by some of this. I, I, I lose track of where one generation ends and another one begins, so I found this graph helpful to me. But baby boomers, you'll see them right there in the middle usually conceived of as those people who were born between 46 and 64, they were once nicknamed the me generation. Have you ever heard that? Boomers, as we call them, were once referred to as the me generation because because of their focus on self. There there was perhaps a a marked uh, uh, self-obsession, self-centeredness in that generation. So they're called the me generation I happen to belong to Generation X myself, and I believe that we, <laughs> my generation, has done a pretty good job of being self-obsessed too. I think one way that our self-obsession manifests itself is through greed on the one hand, or through an emphasis on our own individual expectations and entitlements and our own independence. You and my generation value all of those things to a fault, I would say. In 2013, Time Magazine published a cover story on millennials. Millennials are those people born between 1981 and 1996. 81 and 96, that's millennials. On the cover of that issue of Time Magazine, there's a picture of a young woman. Uh, she's, She's taking a selfie. And the title reads, The Me, Me, Me Generation." Now, Generation Z, that's those of you who are born between 97 and 2012. Are you, are you all self-centered too, would you say? Are you a... maybe? It seems to me like there's been many me generations. Are, are you a me generation as well? Or, or have you broken the pattern? It almost seems like every generation could look back at the one that said before, that look, the one that went before and say, look, you, you, you think you're the me generation? Uh, Hold my drink. I'm going to show you how it's really done. I'll show you what self-centeredness can really look like. In fact, it strikes me that self-obsession and isolation and the lack of true community, these are less generational problems than they are human problems. This image captures perhaps a bit of this. We see perhaps these are pictures of isolation, inward bent, Distance from one another. There's no one talking here in these pictures. Everyone's looking at the top picture. Everyone's looking at their screens, huh? And we might say this is a generational problem. This is present-day American society. We're all obsessed with our own sources of entertainment and news and ourselves. But that other picture was taken a long, long time ago, and we see (laughs) we see some isolation going on there too, right? Less technologically advanced but everyone still got their faces down in their own source of news and entertainment. No one talking to each other. No isolation and distance from one another and self-obsession. It's more a human problem than it is a generational problem. It was St. Augustine, the, the great North African theologian, who wisely observed that humanity's fall into sin in the Garden of Eden. It led to what he called homo incurvatus in se. Homo incurvatus in se, Latin for humanity curved in upon itself. Ever since our original ancestors rejected God, fell into sin, they immediately became curved in on themselves. Doesn't that describe us? Bent in, towards self, my rights, my comfort, my convenience, my expectations, my image, my desires. The, The specifics of what that looks like might change from generation to generation and from year to year as our lives are shaped by history and by technology and by pandemics. But we continue to be from generation to generation, humanity curved in on ourselves as as 2021 rolls on and rolls to an end really many of us we're trying to to reengage with life and community we're trying to reconnect the covid-19 pandemic has distanced us from one another in so many ways we we all learned to social distance physically but beyond that many of us we found ourselves spiritually and emotionally isolated distanced in body, and mind, and in spirit, from for any semblance of, of true human community. Some of us, we were able to huddle up with our, with our families or maybe huddle up with our, our closest friends. We, we learned to depend on, on Zoom to catch up with one another and, and perhaps even pray for one another. But, but along the way, we learned something. We all learned a few things. We learned that we need more community than just our families and just our closest circle of friends. We need more community than even that. We also learn that embodied presence matters. The touch, side-by-side presence, face-to-face interaction, we need it. The substitutes that we had over the past two years were not real substitutes. So New Hope if by God's grace we are now emerging from the worst that this pandemic has brought. I'm not assuming we are, I'm hoping we are. If we're emerging from isolation and separation, then now would be a great time for us to remember who it is that we are collectively. As a community. As his church. And and we're going to try to do this over the next couple of weeks at two levels, the macro and the micro level. So, so today, really, what we're going to think about is the church in the biggest, broadest sense of what that word means. Church with a capital C. Worldwide. And then over the next two weeks, we'll zoom in and we'll think about what the church is in a smaller, local sense. Because yeah, the Bible really uses the word church in, in two different ways. It, it uses church to mean the, the totality of God's people throughout the world and throughout history. And it uses the word church to mean smaller, local communities of God's people, like this one and like the churches up and down this street and in other parts of our nation and the other parts of this planet. And so to differentiate between the global universal church and and local churches like this, yeah, sometimes we'll, we'll call them by different names. We'll call one the universal church, big capital C, and then local churches, local bodies respectively. And, and local churches, local churches are, are, think about it this way, we are specific um, embodiments, smaller embodiments of the universal church. And we'll talk about the local church more eventually, but in order to really do that well, I think we got to think about what church means in the bigger, broader sense. And that's what we're going to try to do today. And we're going to recognize some vital, unmistakable characteristics of the global, uh, century-spanning community of the saints. That the Bible calls the church. So please, if you have a Bible, open up with me again to First Peter chapter two verse nine. We're going to read these two verses one more time. New Hope Fellowship, this is us. This is us right here. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. The Apostle Peter wrote these words to followers of Jesus Christ who were scattered around five different Roman provinces. A broad space, over 300,000 square miles of land. These Christians didn't know we all, all know each other. They were scattered. They did not all share the same ethnicity or the same culture. They all likely spoke Greek, but not necessarily as a first language. There may have been many first languages represented among this population. They, they lived in a society that was not particularly hospitable to Christians either. So so it would have been really easy for these scattered Christians to experience an identity crisis, for them to to forget who they really were by, by either blending in completely with the people and the systems around them, or perhaps not blend in, but become confused about what made them different, about what made them, them. So Peter's here to help in this letter. This is our collective identity here described in two verses, church. And what we're going to look at quickly are eight characteristics that we find here. We're basically just going to go through this passage step by step, briefly look at each one. And, And as you read through this passage, I want to encourage you, don't think me, think us. Again, it's not because individuals don't matter. We saw this last week. Individuals matter to the Lord. Every single last one of us, regardless of how much you matter to the person standing sitting next to you, you matter deeply to God. But today, we're thinking collective, community. So think, this is not just me, this is us. This is us. Here's the first thing we want to see. This people are a chosen people chosen look at the very first line but you are a chosen race race here does not mean an ethnic group it does not mean a group that is that is um that 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 has in common uh, uh genetic traits or even cultural traits no it is a people group but it's a people group that has this one thing in common and it's not ethnicity it's not culture it's not pigmentation what they have in common is that they were chosen chosen. So what they have in common is that they received God's grace. They were chosen. The reason I say they received God's grace is because the choosing that we're talking about here is not a choosing that's based on any good thing that God saw in us. In fact, if we go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, we see how it is that God chooses a people for himself. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord says, he's talking to his Old Testament people, Israel here, and he says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And really what we should think about there is what God is saying. He's not just talking about the the size of the the community. He's saying, I didn't choose you because there was anything particularly impressive about you. I didn't choose you because you were impressive in terms of size, in terms of accomplishments, in terms of characteristics. Your culture wasn't particularly somehow better than others? No. He says, I I chose you. Why? Look at verse 8. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You know, it's interesting what, what God is saying here. It sounds like he's saying... I chose you because I loved you, and I loved you because I loved you. I've said this before. It's one of my favorite little interactions that I have with my daughter, Daniela, because she's she's like she's she's automatic with this now. If I ever ask her, Nella, why 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 do I love you? And I love asking her just to make sure she's you know she's paying attention. I say, do, do, do Nella, do, why 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 does Daddy love you? She always says the same thing. She says, you love me because you love me. You love me because you love me. Now, there are many, many reasons that I love my daughter. There are many beautiful things about her that I adore. But if all those things were to change, I would still love her. If she were not as sweet, if she were not as beautiful, if she were not as smart, if all those wonderful characteristics were to disappear overnight, I would still love her. I love her because I love her. This is how God loves us. He says, I have set my love upon you. And because my love is not based on anything you did or didn't do, I'm not going to stop loving you because of anything you do or don't do. It's settled. It's settled. God's church, globally, Right now, as people gathered or have gathered to worship him all over this planet, and as we follow in a long line of many other churches that have gathered all over this world to worship God, we have this one thing in common, all chosen, all chosen by God. But the passage goes on to tell us more. We're not just a chosen people. He says, you are an anointed people, anointed. And this is where we see this. Look at the very next line. He says, you are a royal priesthood. In the Old Testament, there were two offices that were particularly important. Perhaps the two most important offices in the Old Testament, they were the priest and the king. Priests and kings, two most important roles. Both were anointed. So what I mean is this, if you were chosen to be a king, you would be set apart, and that setting apart would be Uh, symbolized through a ceremonial anointing that would involve oil being poured over your head. It would involve a certain dress, a certain ceremony, certain rituals that would say to the world and everybody in your community, this person has been set apart for this role. They are now king. They are now priest. But these are two very different roles in many ways. The king represented god to the people that is he ruled over the people as if he were a representative of god the priest on the other hand the priest represented the people to god the priest would go into the holy of holies go into the temple and perform sacrifices as a representative a stand-in for the whole population when the king stood before the people and he said this is the law they received that as if it came from god it was That king standing in the place of God, communicating to them. What we find when we get to the New Testament, we'll be celebrating this very soon as Christmas rolls around, but hopefully we're celebrating this every Sunday. A man entered this world in the form of a little little boy who was both priest and king. He represented God before us. He was, in fact, God. But on the cross, he would represent us, the people, before God and offer up himself as a sacrifice, the perfect king, the perfect priest, anointed for that purpose. And we are told here that if you have believed in him and in his sacrifice and his kingly resurrection and rule, then you too have been anointed. You've been set apart. Set apart as a representative of God in this world, individually and collectively. You've also been set apart as a priest. There's a reason that um, we don't have priests in this church. That there's a reason that when you want to pray to the Lord, you don't need to go talk to someone to pass a message on for you. When you want to worship the Lord, you don't need to ask someone else to worship on your behalf. You don't need someone to stand in between you you and god you know why because god has made us he says a nation of priests a royal priesthood we get to worship god directly as a people we're anointed chosen anointed passage goes on to say we are also a cleansed people a cleansed people look at that very next phrase a holy nation Peter says, you are not only chosen and a royal priesthood, but you are a holy nation. And holy can, has different shades of meaning. Holy can mean uh, set apart, just kind of anointed means. But holy also has, carries the this, this, this significance of pure, cleansed. And that's why I'm saying we are a cleansed people. God has made us holy. He has washed away our sins. Through the Old Testament in its entirety, you see so many mentions about ritual purity and cleansing. We're reminded throughout the Old Testament again and again that in and of ourselves, we are impure. We are dirty because, of, not because, but we are dirty because of the, the dirty deeds and thoughts and actions that have emerged from our hearts. But god says when i chose you i set you apart and i cleansed you now you're clean you may not always feel clean but you're clean now this is something that it might be interesting for it might be hard for us to receive this really because if you know anything about the history of the church you'll know that there's been a lot of evil and ugliness in the history of the church and all you have to do is look at the church globally now and you see ugliness you see abuse you see deception and greed in the church, globally, now. That doesn't negate what Peter's telling us here. We still are holy people. Here's what this means. The Lord has, by his own blood, washed away the sins of his church. And he says to us, you are now pure. You are, we used this word last week, you are positionally pure. I have Established and declared your cleanness before my Father and before the world. And yet, and yet, there's a long process, a long, long process of us practically and functionally catching up with that. That is, although we have been declared clean positionally, There's a lot of uncleanness in us that the Lord is still continuing to deal with, isn't he, in his church worldwide as he brings reformation and renewal and repentance to his people all over the world. And so when we say that the Lord has cleaned us, that's not bragging. That's saying he has declared us clean. Now, Lord, please continue the work of cleansing us functionally, practically root out sin from your church, root out evil and abuse from your church so that we will live the way you've declared us, live as who you have declared us to be, the cleansed people. In Exodus chapter 19, might as well open up there, in Exodus chapter 19, the the Lord is speaking to his Old Testament people at, at Mount Zion, or Mount Sinai, I should say, I'm sorry. And, and he says there, he uses language that sounds a lot like 1 Peter 2 language. It's really interesting. Look at what he says in verse 5. Now, know there, now therefore, if you, if, now that's a big word there, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's First Peter 2 language, isn't it? But notice he's saying if, God is saying to his people, if you obey, if you keep my covenant, if you do what you're supposed to do, you will be these things. A people for my possession, a holy nation. In First Peter, there's no if. The reason there's no if, because by the time Peter wrote this letter, the scattered Christians around Asia Minor, Jesus had come, and Jesus had lived, and Jesus had perfectly kept the covenant with his Father, and Jesus had perfectly obeyed all his commandments. Jesus lived up to the if in Exodus 19, so that now this is a reality for us. There's no if for us anymore. Because Jesus lived up to the requirements, we as his people through faith in him. Can you believe it? Through simple faith in him, we have now been called a holy nation? A nation of priests? And he will continue to cleanse his people until one day when Christ returns, we will look the way he wants us to look. And he will present to himself a bride, a perfect church church. It's been wiped clean of every stain of sin. We're chosen, we're anointed, we're cleansed, we got to move faster, we're protected. We're protected. Look at that next line there. He says, we are a people for his own possession. He owns us. And the reason I'm saying protected is because if God owns you and you belong to him, you are safe, church. You are safe. The Bible uses the language of adoption often. We were once an orphaned people, but no longer. The church, this local church and the church globally is not an orphanage. It's a household with with the Father, God Himself, parenting with love and care and presence, kindness. The Bible uses the language of ransom, too, that the Lord ransomed us. He paid the price to free us from slavery and make us His. We were once an enslaved people, but no longer. We've been freed from guilt and the power of sin, and we've been adopted. God says, you're mine. You are my possession now. And one takeaway we must, because we might not notice as we hear those words, we must take away this truth if we belong to God, then we are safe. It always seems like there's someone, and, and, every, and every decade, and every seems even from, from news cycle to news cycle, I hear people ringing the alarm about, about some new, great, creeping threat to the church. The new thing that, that threatens the gospel and threatens God's church. It threatens to destroy the church. Usually it's some form of secularism in some form some philosophy, some political system, maybe it's some political party that some see as like, this is the death of the church. If these people get into office, if these philosophies get taught in our schools, people have been doing this forever. And and then the church gets alarmed and starts to go go into culture war mode, decrying this, this danger to the church. We're safe, church. The church is safe. And, and, and frankly, what, what bothers me about that most of all is I think there's a hustle behind it. I think it's a con. I think it's a con. I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's any coincidence It often the voices that I often hear decrying these great threats to the church. This is the biggest threat to the church in ages. If we don't fight this, the gospel will not survive. The same voices I hear saying that are then saying, and I also wrote this book, and I have these products that if you listen to and you, if, and you read, and if, if you listen to my voice and you buy my stuff, we'll be safe. That's an old hustle, isn't it? Matthew 16, 16, Jesus himself said, and I'll, and I'll take his word over any other pundit's words, he says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it yes there are sins and failures for which the church must repent we're just talking about that under that heading of 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 cleansed right there are sins that we must repent of and frankly i would suggest to you that the evils within the church that we must repent of those are a greater danger to the church than threats from outside the church those evils that the church itself has committed and, or overlooked and allowed or swept under the rug. And so often these extreme external threats, they become a distraction, a way for the church to stop having to deal with the problems it has inside. If we focus on that war, that culture war, those threats from outside, then we don't have to talk about the abuse and the greed and... No, I think the greater threats are from inside, but even those internal threats will not destroy the church. No, as the church continues by God's grace to repent and to reform, we will find that Jesus' words are trustworthy. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Even the sins of my people will not prevail over my church, Jesus can say. Because, and we can trust him, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. These threats to the church, they come and go, but Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, today, forever. Let's move on. We're not just a chosen people and an anointed people, a cleansed people, and a protected people, but we are also a commissioned people. We have work to do. We've been commissioned. Here's what First Peter says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. This is why God's people globally and throughout history has existed. It's to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us. It's why we exist collectively, and we must remember this. The great H.B. Charles, Pastor H.B. Charles, put it this way, when you lose your why, you lose your way. If you forget why we exist, We're going to lose our way. And the why behind why we exist, church, is to be a walking, living, talking pointer to the beauty of Jesus Christ. Through words and deeds of faith, through deeds and words of mercy and justice, through the explicit communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we preach the excellencies of God in word and deed. We preach to the world His wisdom, His power, His love, His justice, His mercy. And we're not even just proclaiming that to humans. This might sound a little weird, folks, but it's in the Bible. This proclamation, commission that we've been given, we're, not just procl- we're proclaiming this truth, the excellencies of God, to one another, to people outside the global church, And outside of local churches, yes. But it doesn't even end there. Look at what Ephesians 3.10 says. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, we could say the excellencies of God, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. These are individuals that you and I have never seen face to face. Well, maybe you have. If you did, tell me about it. I'd love to hear that story. But these are individuals that carry authority and power in the spiritual realm. <laughs> these are beings that, in many cases, perhaps pre existed us. There are beings unlike us in some way that the Bible speaks openly about, although in, in vague, sometimes in mysterious ways. But God says, I want the church to proclaim the excellencies of who I am, to each other, to people outside the church, and even beings outside of this universe (laughs) that we've grown so comfortable living in. So at times we may feel like we lack relevancy, we lack immediacy. We need to come back to God's word and be remembered. This is why we exist. So yes, we must. Strive for relevancy and strive for immediacy and strive for clarity and integrity so that we can carry out this commission well. So that we can tell one another within our families and every area of our lives that God is, in fact, excellent. We're also a called people. A called people. First Peter 2 says, look, he called you out of darkness and into marvelous light he called you out of darkness and into marvelous light think about it this way there was a time when every single one of us if you know jesus christ there was a time when you were blindly walking in darkness like like in a pitch black room no light at all we just we um we just switched church offices, by the way. We, we're at 75 Virginia Road, if any of you want to stop by and say hi. Where our, church, our little small church office is, is, is there, but we moved up the hallway from, a, from our old office to a, to a new space. And, and the new space is actually smaller. It's a little bit more expensive. But here's the, here's the, the upside. There's windows. There's light that comes in. I thank God for these windows. I know Brian did. We thank God for these windows when we walk into that place. But our old office that I was very thankful for, for years we, we, we used, and it, it functioned very well, there was no windows. And sometimes I would be working there late at night with a little uh, desk lamp, and I would mistakenly, foolishly turn off that desk lamp to leave at the end of the night, and I'd forget that as soon as that desk lamp goes off, You can't see a thing. You're like in Lazarus's grave. You can't see anything. And so you immediately start walking into stuff, tripping. There was a time in each of our lives where we were walking in pitch black darkness, running into things, hurting ourselves, hurting others, stepping in who knows what, until the Lord came and he called us out. Out of darkness into light. I don't know about you, I have done so many stupid things that I look back at and I say, the only way I can explain it, I must have been blind. Headed to hell. And so God reached down and he pulls us out, he calls us out. There's, there's the external call that we hear when people in our lives simply shared the gospel with us and called us to believe it. But then there was that that internal call. God was drawing us, pulling us out of the darkness into the light. It's as if you were driving down, it's as if you were driving down the Bronx River Parkway on on the wrong side of the road with your headlights off at two in the morning and you can't see a thing. And the Lord comes and he, Calls you, draws you out of that reality. He puts you on the opposite side of that road. He turns on your headlights and he sends you on your way. So he's rescued, not, the lights go on so that you can see the danger that you're in and you can see the one who's rescuing you from it all. We're a called people. New hope. A called people. And we're also united in diversity. We are united in diversity. Look at verse 10 as we end this passage. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. If you look at the church of God globally and throughout history, what you're going to find is a seemingly random assortment of people throughout time in the world. Very little in common with each other. But now, he says you are a people. This random assortment of people, even if I look around this room, I see what could, to some, look like a random assortment of people of different ages, ethnicities, and backgrounds. He says, I've made you a people so that now you have more in common with a Christian in Cyprus or Kyrgyzstan than you do with a non-Christian who grew up in the same neighborhood as you and you went to school with your whole life and same language spoken, same cultural tastes. Why? Why? Because you've been united as a chosen, anointed, protected people. Unity and diversity is what we experience in the church globally and throughout history. Some of you may remember from Sunday school class, if you ever went to Sunday school, what happened in Genesis chapter 11? Genesis chapter 11 tells the story of a, a, a group of people, really thousands probably, who decided to build a tower. Remember this? They decided to build a tower in a, a show of their, of their intelligence and an act of pride and rebellion against God. They build a tower, and, and as a result, what happens is God comes and he judges them, and what happens is this people that at one time was a homogenous uniform group of people united in culture and language and perspective god comes and he scatters them and and genesis 11 says their language is confused and so what happened is you have this people that were once a people god says no now you're going to be many different kinds of people and there's going to be not only miscommunication and confusion between you there's going to be animosity there's going to be distance social isolation god scatters the whole thing in judgment to some degree, that might feel like the world that we live in now. Pastor Erwin Ince, he describes that, what happens there in, uh, in Genesis 11, as a kind of ghettoization. He calls ghettoization, and really he's using the, the word ghetto kind of in the, in the older sense of the word. It means ghettoization would mean the, the taking of people from different people groups, different ethnicities and different people groups, religions even, and... and, and Putting them into little pockets of isolated communities, right? So for instance, think about what happened um, you know, prior to World War II and the, the ghettoization of the of the, the 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 Jewish community in Europe when they were taken out and sent to go live in these little homogeneous places, sad, difficult, hard, homogeneous places where they were cut off from everyone that was different, like different from them. What In says is that what happened at the Tower of Babel was a kind of global. Everyone kind of got sent to their own little tribes, their own little people groups, isolated from each other. But then he goes on to describe what happens in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, when the church of God is birthed, when the Holy Spirit comes, and what does the Holy Spirit do? He unifies people that were scattered and disconnected when he comes and these people who are coming from many different parts all around the all around the roman empire they come together and when the spirit arrives what does he do he enables these apostles these representatives of god to preach the gospel in such a way that every single people group was able to understand the gospel in his or her own language here's what in I don't know why I'm describing it. I should just read the quote because he's much more articulate than I am. He says, this is what the Spirit undoes at Pentecost in Acts 2. It is a reversal of Babel. We see this multinational church begin to take form and expression in Acts. We get out of the ghettos. We get out of the homogenous little pockets that we live in by the Spirit of Christ. And we're unified. The diversity doesn't disappear. No, the diversity is beautiful. It creates a mosaic that highlights the wisdom and the power of God. Now end with this. We're done. Last thing we gotta see, we are loved people. We're loved people. He says at the end of verse 10, You had one, you once, excuse me, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God poured out his mercy on us. He didn't strike a deal with us. He lavishly poured out his mercy and forgiveness and acceptance in love. And the reason he did this is because he's rich in mercy. Ephesians 2 says he's rich in mercy. And when you think about God's mercy towards you, don't just think about the fact that he had pity on you. Think about this, new hope. When God shows mercy to you, it is always mercy rooted in love. Ephesians 2 verse 4 says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Yes, he's rich in mercy, but why did he give us any of that mercy? He could have kept it all. He could have given it to someone who deserved it. He gave it to us because because of the great love with which he loved us. He loved us because he loved us. And because he loved us, he poured out mercy. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace. have been saved now you have mercy that doesn't mean later you're going to get look new hope this is true of all of us in the church you have mercy now not when you get your act together not when you become a better christian you have mercy now and all of this that we've looked at all eight of these they all start with god did you notice that he chose he anointed he cleansed he called he he commissioned he united us he loved us this is us. This is us. How do we live out this reality here and now? How do we live out this collective identity? What well, we're going to see over the next two weeks that in order for us to live out this identity, we must do it as members of smaller local communities like New Hope Fellowship and many others. We cannot live out this collective global identity unless we are living together in smaller local communities. You belong eternally and to, to, to a global community, but you live that out right here, right now in a local community called the local church. You've heard the phrase, think globally, act locally. Think global, act local. That's what First Peter is telling us the first half of that, the global reality. Keep it in mind, and now let's live that out locally right here with the brothers and sisters that God's put us next to and in life with. And that's hard. It's hard to do that because of our individualistic bent. We, we think of self first, and, and we usually do, but it's even harder during a pandemic. Look at what Jonathan Lehman said. He says, virtual church trains us to think that our faith is autonomous and pragmatic. It trains us to think of our faith in autonomous and pragmatic terms. Virtual church, he says, it it teaches us that that we can follow Jesus without teaching us what it means to be a part of his family and to inconvenience ourselves for his family. And so we end up with a misguided sense of who we are. And when we end up with a misguided sense of who we are, it leads us into all kinds of trouble, New Hope. That's true at the individual level, and it's true at the collective level level two. When the church forgets or, or, or fails to understand her true identity, she will begin to act in ways that she was never meant to. She will begin to take for granted and neglect the things that make her the church. So let's remember who we are. And, and over the next two weeks as we give ourselves to this study, let, let's push back against the impulse to think me and think instead us. Yeah? Let's pray. Father, thank you for making us a people. Give us the grace we need to live as the people you have made us to be. We thank you, Jesus. The cost at which this identity came to us, it was the cost of everything for you. We praise you. We bless your name. Amen.